0: Of the desert, an angel in the body. You're listening to sermons from St. Makarios the Great Orthodox Mission in Hyde Park In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Amen Say hi to the, to the folks online Thank you for joining us Today, today we heard this parable about this certain landowner who experienced the good fortune of what is known in the agricultural world as a bumper crop. And in response, decided on two courses of action. First, this man decided that he would take this surplus And he would use it to expand his estate, his estate. He would build bigger barns to store his crops. And second, he decided he would take his surplus and use it to expand his ease and his pleasure. But of course, before this man can complete the addition to his estate or enjoy the fruits of his surplus, his life is required of him and the judgment that our Lord offers of this man is simple. He was a fool. It strikes me that this judgment seems a bit odd in our modern society, our modern capitalist world, because we have given a different sort of name for this man. In our world, we have made this individual into an idealized subject. We call him, in the language of economists, homo economicus, the economic human. This is how Wikipedia defines homo economicus. The human agent who is rational, narrowly self-interested, and pursues subjectively defined ends optimally. Or to choose a slightly different definition, homo economicus is the individual who both maximizes utility as a consumer and maximizes profits as a producer. And I want to suggest this is precisely what we see From this rich man in the peril. First of all, the rich man acts rationally, at least according to a certain modern logic. When the rich man has a surplus, he stores it in his bigger barns, which will will provide food for him in case of bad harvest, and will also allow him to sell at a greater profit should prices rise in the future. There's a certain rationality to his decisions. Secondly, the rich man, as homo economicus is, was narrowly self-interested. You can hear it in his speech. He says to himself, what shall I do, since I have no room to store mine crops? I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build a greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. Thirdly, like Homo Economicus, the rich man pursues his own subjectively defined ends because he goes on to say, soul. You have many goods laid up for many years, so take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. So the rich man, he follows the logic, follows this definition of homo economicus to a T. Rational, self-interested, in pursuit of his own desires maximizes his, his utility as a consumer and his profits as a producer. So why does our Lord call him a fool? Why is there this disconnect between the logic perspective, the actions of this rich man, and the logic Perspective and actions that our Lord is inviting us into. I want to propose one missing element to this story is a bit of context. Parables, after all, are stories taken from everyday life. So they presume a shared context among the hearers, a shared understanding of how the world works, how the world looks. And there are a number of striking differences, though also similarities, between our world and the world of ancient Palestine, of first century Galilee. And so, to kind of understand what is going on in this parable, I want to unpack a bit of that context so that we can look at this again and hopefully understand it in a new way. So first of all, the big difference between our world and ancient Palestine in the first century was that ancient Palestine was a pre-industrial society. So the vast majority of people lived in rural areas, very different from our urban life these days. Most of them lived in these urban areas in the small towns, only about ten the 15% of the population lived in big cities, which were considered cities of 10,000 people or more. 10 to 15%. So the vast majority, 80 to 90% of people, were peasants that lived in villages surrounding the cities, working in agriculture. So the story from farming was very common. Very widespread experience for these people to know about this. A second feature of ancient Palestine was that There was no middle class. Wealth in the world of ancient Palestine was based entirely on ownership of land. And land was controlled by a very small number of wealthy elite families. And they controlled this land largely as absentee landlords that lived in the big Cities And these wealthy elites, then, they extracted their wealth and the surplus that allowed them to live from the subsistence farmers and slaves who actually worked their land. And so then they produced rents for them, they produced produce, and they produced taxes, which helped to fund the lifestyles, the lavish lifestyles of these wealthy elite. And then the third big difference is that Although, this is not necessarily a big difference for most of the world, but poverty in ancient Palestine was extremely widespread, both in rural and urban areas, there was, and there was a vast and growing amount of economic inequality. The top 10% of the population controlled two-thirds of all the wealth. And then, the bottom 90% lived basically around subsistence levels. A small sliver of that, 20% of that or so, lived slightly above subsistence levels where they had a reasonable hope of not falling into destitution and maintaining their sort of standard of living. But 70%, the bottom 70%, lived at or below subsistence levels in very fluid categories and they could move back and forth. One year they might be able to survive, and the next year a bad crop or an injury or whatnot could cause devastation. So here's how one scholar described life in first century Galilee. He said, Together, these privileged elites, very few in number, drew their wealth from the products of peasants and herders, craftsmen and traders. These products funded lavish lifestyles for the ruling class and its priests, scribes, and bureaucrats, as well as palaces, temples, fortifications, monuments, and a forceful army. Members of the imperial ruling class enjoyed a comfortable and privileged standard of living without engaging in any productive labor on behalf of society, with no obligation to those they ruled other than to assure that they were able to produce sufficient wealth to sustain the rulers and their privilege. One other wrinkle in this world, another hardship faced by most of the population who owed rent and produce to these wealthy elites, was taxes. Taxes were also another major source of poverty for people in this world. At harvest time, as the harvest time drew near, Two forms of taxation were enacted on the people. They were levied first from the Roman imperial state to find the imperial core of the empire, and second, they were levied from the local rulers. And the local leaders would use this to fund their lifestyles. And so for the 90% of the population that lived slightly above or at or below subsistence levels, Taxes were almost always a burden. Often, the peasants were forced to take out loans from moneylenders or from their absentee landlords at high rates of interest in order to pay back their or to pay off their taxes. So this created a compounding effect of hardship for most farmers, most of these peasant farmers, because. They had to hope for a good harvest not only to live off of, not only to pay their rent, not only to supply the produce that they need to give to their landlords, but they also had to pay back their loans, plus a hefty interest. And risk then was compounded by all the normal dangers faced by farming, poor crop, bad weather, bad land. These peasants who were unable to pay back their debts were then forced into debt servitude, becoming tenant farmers, losing their ancestral land, or becoming day laborers or even beggars. So, the reality of life in ancient Palestine was a tendency for these estates to grow in size for the wealthy elites at the top of society, while at the same time that debt, insecurity, and inequality grew for the vast majority at the bottom. This is what the prophet Isaiah condemns in the fifth chapter When he says, woe to those who join house to house, who connect field to field until no space remains and you alone dwell in the midst of the land. Or likewise, the epistle of James condemns the practices of the wealthy landlords and landowners of that day. He says in chapter 5 of James, Come now, you rich, weep and wail for your impending misery. Behold, the wages you withheld from the workers who harvested your fields are crying aloud. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fatted your heart for the day of slaughter. So returning returning then to the rich man in this parable, with this context in mind, perhaps we can fill out some more details of the story that would have been assumed by the original hearers. We can fill out some of the details of what this rich man was like. He was a landowner likely an absentee landowner, driven by a logic of scarcity and greed, and the need to extract as much as possible from his tenant farmers and slaves, a man who lived by exploiting and cheapening the labor of others. Perhaps we should think, when we hear the story of this rich man, of someone who is disconnected from the land, disconnected from the community, isolated, living only for himself. Perhaps we should think of a man who values everything based on its utility to himself, no matter what the cost to others. The community to himself or to the earth. This, I argue, is what our Lord has in mind when he says that this man lays up treasures for himself but fails to be rich towards God. To be rich towards God is not merely a call to almsgiving, though it is that, and that is important. But richness towards God is a call to conversion. It's about a change of heart, first and foremost, that will manifest itself in our lives and our actions. And Christ is inviting us this morning into this change of heart, and I want to look at three, three aspects of this change. Three aspects of this conversion that Christ is inviting us into. The first is contrary to the rationality of the rich man, of homo economicus, to return to our earlier phrase, Our Lord is inviting us to a change of logic, a change of rationality, a conversion. The rich man was bound up in the logic of scarcity, the logic of greed. Our Lord is inviting us in this parable to a different logic, a logic of abundance, a logic of Sharing, The rich man, he knew about scarcity, he was saving for a rainy day, he knew about greed, he was looking out for his own pleasure. But to these, our Lord contrasts. Just a few verses further in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel, just a few verses further, our Lord says this. Consider the ravens. They do not sow. They do not reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more important are you than birds? It's interesting that our Lord chose a raven, which was, of course, an unclean animal according to the Mosaic law. But I did a bit of research and I have some bird facts. Ravens are interesting creatures. Did you know that the raven has a very large brain, in terms of brain to body size ratio? The brains of ravens are equivalent to chimpanzees. So they're very smart. Ravens, amazingly, can make tools. They can learn languages. They can deceive other animals. And they can even work cooperatively. Uh, some of these latter features are especially evident when you observe how ravens feed. They're often observed distracting. One raven will distract some other creature so one of their companions can collect some food. Or, alternatively, ravens are known to cooperate with other animals, such as wolves, to share and kill. So the raven, the raven's action, his actions contrast directly with that rich man. It's funny, my friend from seminary, uh, Seraphim, shout out to Seraphim if he's watching, uh, my friend Seraphim, he, he used to send out these emails when we were at seminary in which he would, he was a bird watcher, he would observe the birds that lived on the lake behind our apartment, and he would observe these birds and then take a picture of them and write up a little theological reflection on the lives of these birds and send it to us in an email, and there were just wonderful little notes to get, and I guess he got this practice from our Lord because this is precisely what Christ is doing. Consider the raven. In contrast to the rich man who looked out only for himself, who lived by exploiting and using others, who was driven by fear and greed, the ravens, in contrast, do not sow or reap, but by working together. By sharing communally. They are fed by God. So our Lord has invited us first and foremost to a change of logic, a conversion from seeing the world in terms of the scarcity and greed to abundance and sharing. Secondly, so we saw of Homo economicus, the man who is narrowly self-interested. Our Lord is inviting us to a change of perspective, a conversion, you might say, from me to we. A conversion from self-interest to the interest of others. A movement from the isolation of the self to the community of the faithful. So we already saw the rich man in this parable he knew how to take care of himself. We saw the number of first person pronouns spoken directly by this man. It was rather shocking. He had his surplus, his wealth, his money, his land. My, 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 my. I, my, I, I. So, of course, as we saw in the context of the first century. Palestinian world, none of these wealthy landowners worked their own fields. None of them created their surpluses. None of them, or none of us, rather, are able to create joy and abundance alone. So to this, to this narrowly self-interested rich man, our Lord offers a different contrast, another contrast. The flowers of the field. Notice how the flowers grow, they do not toil or spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass and field that grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, for you of little faith? So by this contrast, by this contrast, our Lord is challenging the meaning of wealth. It's not found in great monuments of human achievement built on the backs of others. This is, after all, what Solomon is not for in the Scriptures. Solomon created The great wealth of the kingdom of Israel built even the temple of God using slave labor. One of the most tragic stories in all of the scriptures. How a people rescued from slavery and brought out to be different ended up enslaving others. So, to this, our Lord is inviting us to change our perspective, to see where true wealth lies. It's not in the striving, narrow self-interest of this rich man who wanted to enlarge his estate and his appetites, but rather and our mutual dependence on one another. It's as St. Paul says to the Philippian church, let each of us look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It's a movement, as I said, from I to we. It's a movement from me to us, from mine to ours, a movement from seeing ourselves as atomized individuals competing in a world of scarce resources, to a beloved community cooperating and sharing in the benefits we have received from God. And thirdly, the third call to conversion that is contained in this parable from our Lord, challenges that third aspect of homo economicus, the pursuit of his own ends. The rich man pursued his own ends. He maximized his utility. To change, our Lord is saying, from maximized utility to gratitude. The rich man was, after all, seeking to take care of his own pleasures. He wanted to increase his life of ease to have a party, to eat, to drink, and be married. To this, again, we have the contrast of the raven and the flower. In both these cases, they receive what they have, with gratitude as a gift from God. This is the ultimate conversion that our Lord is inviting us into. It's a conversion that takes us out of ourselves and reorients our lives. To live with gratitude, to live with thanksgiving, to live eucharistically, you might say, is to realize that everything we have, everything we have received is a gift from God, and that our response is not to use those gifts for ourselves alone, for our own ends, our own utility, but to offer them back to God, to share them with one another. This is precisely what we see in the Eucharist, the gifts of nature, wheat, water, grapes, yeast, taken and transformed to bread and wine, the work of human beings, the collective work of us. And we take those gifts that we have put our labor into and we offer them to God, offer them back to him, because everything comes from him, first of all. We offer it back to him and then we receive it again as a blessing. We receive it again as an act of thanksgiving, something that was given to us, which we share with all. We receive it from God and it goes and it belongs to the whole community. We share it with all a life of thanksgiving, a life without this fear or anxiety, this scarcity mindset or this greed, without this narrow self-interest or selfishness. But rather, what we received is, as we say, on behalf of all and for all. This is the conversion our Lord is inviting us into this morning. So may we be people who embrace the logic of abundance and sharing, people who embrace a perspective of the community, people who live lives of gratitude, and in this way be pleasing to our Lord, God, and Savior Jesus Christ. Belongs all glory, honor, and worship together with his father who is without beginning, is all holy good and life giving spirit now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Yeah.